Good afternoon. This is Midday Magazine for Monday, October 17th. I'm Julie Hersey. Petersburg Borough Assembly meets tonight to swear in two new Assembly members. Donna Marsh and Scott Newman will take their oath of office for three-year terms. The Assembly's regular meeting starts at 6 o'clock tonight in Assembly Chambers. There will be a public hearing on an ordinance that would mean land conveyed to the borough in a tax foreclosure proceeding would be offered for public sale. Public testimony will be taken. The Assembly will also consider this ordinance in a second reading. There will also be public testimony taken on an ordinance adjusting the fiscal year 2023 budget for known changes. Assembly members will consider this ordinance in its first reading as well. Police Chief Jim Kerr will give an update to the Assembly on the requested purchase of in-car video cameras. Mayor Mark Jensen is scheduled to give a report thanking exiting Assembly members. He will ask for letters of interest for people to fill two vacant seats on municipal boards. One is on the Harbors and Ports Advisory Board, and one is on the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board. The Assembly will hear a report from the borough manager on many borough projects, including the new Chevy Tahoe police vehicle, bear and garbage reports, and early stages of a potential new BMX bike track for the community. Also at the meeting, the Assembly will consider an ordinance that establishes two separate directors for elderly housing and assisted living at Mountain View Manor. The ordinance is in its third and final reading. In new business, the Assembly will consider a resolution urging state funding of harbor projects in Sitka, Whittier, and Wrangell Myers Chuck. The resolution supports full funding of over $8 million for the State of Alaska Municipal Harbor Facility Grant Program in the 2024 fiscal year capital budget. Last meeting, the borough informally approved establishing a housing task force. This week, it will be formally approved by resolution per borough charter. Chelsea Tremblay is requesting to be reappointed to the role of chair of the Early Childhood Education Task Force, Tremblay recently lost her seat on the Assembly, but would like to remain chair on the task force. The Assembly will consider appointing someone to serve on the Alaska Municipal League statewide housing task force. It will mostly focus on housing, but will include a child care subgroup. The Assembly will then consider who might attend the Alaska Municipal League's 2022 local government conference. That will be in Anchorage December 7th through the 9th. Again, the Borough Assembly meeting will be held tonight in Assembly Chambers. Starting at 6 o'clock this evening, KFSK will broadcast the meeting live and we will post it online, kfsk.org. And stay tuned in just about 20 minutes for Borough Business. It's a call-in program with Borough officials at 1230. And you can call in your comments or your questions. The number is 907-772-3808. Ben Stevens, a former state Senate president and son of longtime Alaska Senator Ted Stevens, died Friday night at the age of 63. Stevens was hiking the Lost Lake Trail near Seward when he had a medical emergency, according to a statement from Alaska State Troopers. CPR was already being administered, and troopers requested a LifeMed helicopter to respond. Troopers say life-saving measures were unsuccessful, and Stevens died on the trail. Stevens served as a state senator from his appointment in 2001 until he left office in 2005 during the VICO scandal. According to the Anchorage Daily News, Stevens was one of six state legislators whose offices were raided by the FBI in 2006 for suspicion of having taken bribes from oil field services company VICO. 
Four of those investigated eventually were convicted, but Stevens was never charged with a crime. Stevens returned to politics in July of 2019, working as Governor Mike Dunleavy's chief of staff. In a statement Friday afternoon, Dunleavy said Stevens was a great friend of his who dedicated his life to making Alaska a better place. He said, quote, everyone will remember Ben's continued commitment to our great state, unquote. In 2021, Stevens left the Dunleavy administration for a job as vice president of external affairs and transportation at ConocoPhillips. The vessel that eventually replaces the aging state ferry Tustamina is likely to be a battery-powered diesel-electric hybrid. That's as the Alaska Marine Highway System leverages federal infrastructure funding to green up its fleet. Gary or Greg Jennings is a special projects liaison with the State Transportation Department, and he told the Alaska Marine Highway Operations Board Friday that the state sees electric propulsion as a big part of the ferry system's future. The beauty of this battery installation is it gives us the flexibility to do a lot of things we couldn't do before. The 300-foot ocean-class ferry Tustamina is nearly six decades old. The plane... The plan for its replacement now includes a room for housing batteries with the potential to expand. Jennings says the decision to install the batteries on the vessel opens a lot of doors. The Tustamino's two diesel engines currently use about 150 gallons of fuel per hour at cruising speed. Jennings says adding electric power will allow captains to use just one diesel engine at a time. And he said that's expected to cut fuel consumption by 1%. If you look year over year over the lifetime use of the vessel, that's a major savings to the state. One percent may not sound alike, like a lot, but in ship design, you go to immense lengths to get one percent savings because it's like every day you operate that vessel, that's one percent you're saving fuel. State transportation officials estimate adding batteries to the vessel would add millions to the new ferry's estimated $250 million price tag. But Jennings says the state expects to lean on federal money to help pay for it. The federal infrastructure law passed last year includes more than $1 billion in ferry funding. With the infrastructure funding uh, that's available to the state, um, much of that is very much centered around uh, efficiency and modern technologies. And it behooves us to try to make use of that. You know, if we cannot, for some reason, funding doesn't come through, um, it is not a drastic step to remove the battery from the vessel and just say, you know, we don't have funding, we're just not going to do that part of it. The state is in conversations with the U.S. Coast Guard and American Bureau of Shipping for what kind of safety measures should be in place for the hybrid ferry. Jennings says adding battery power to the Tustamina replacement vessel, known as the TRV, will allow the state to learn about the technology and prepare for other projects in the future. And we're looking at operating the TRV for the next 50 years, you know, uh, nominally. And if we don't design in some capacity for batteries now, the state's going to have to pay a much bigger cost in the future to try to fit it into a vessel that wasn't designed for it. He said adding batteries to the design will not affect the timeline. The new vessel is still scheduled to be ready for service in 2027. The ferry service is also seeking $46 million in federal grant money for an all-electric ferry to conduct shorter day routes. Canneries are a big part of Alaska's history. Throughout the 20th century, 
waves of immigrants, primarily from the Philippines, came to work alongside Native people in the canneries. And the mug-up exhibit at the Alaska State Museum in Juneau highlighted this history for the last six months. Yvonne Crumry walked through the museum with a curator and a former cannery worker and historian during Filipino American History Month. So three meals and then these mug-up breaks. The exhibit features lots of historic films and photos. There are black and white posed photos from the turn of the 20th century and more candid photos taken by friends from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Some panels explore the histories of the different labor movements that swept through Alaska's canneries. There's even a recreation of a bunkhouse with a door covered in the names of the workers who slept there from the 1980s until 2009. And next to it is a mess hall with a hand-painted table and a handwritten weekend menu. Jackie Manning is the exhibit's curator. Her favorite thing is a little cart used to serve coffee to workers during what was called mug-up time. And that's where the exhibit gets its name. When I went up to Bristol Bay and I saw that that little Cushman cart is what it's called, um, it and heard the stories about how diverse the uh, the cannery crew was and and how important that mug up time was for camaraderie and everybody meeting and taking their breaks and just all the different languages you'd hear on the docks. Oscar Peñaranda moved from the Philippines to Canada and eventually to California before coming to Alaska to work in a Bristol Bay cannery in the 1960s. People sometimes start anew, they come here. And other people also are running away from things. Some are, have a specific destination to come, so they have many, many different reasons. But they always, they always came back. And he kept coming back. He worked 15 summer seasons in Alaska before deciding to stay in San Francisco full-time. He's a historian now. He founded the San Francisco chapter of the Filipino American National Historical Society and wrote about his experiences as an Alaskaro. That's the term for Filipinos who worked in Alaska's canneries. For Filipino American History Month, he was in Juneau last week for the closing of the exhibit. He recognized some names and faces in the exhibit, like the Filipino union leaders who formed the Alaska Cannery Workers Association. They were murdered in 1981. And he said that's when he stopped going to work in Alaska. You don't get hired if you don't know anybody. You know, the, that's the two who were assassinated, that's what they were trying to clean up. Penny Ronda worked at the cannery for 14 years. And he said he kept going back for the camaraderie. He made lifelong friends. We didn't feel like we had to get in touch between seasons because we were going to go the next season and catch up. That's part of the reason why we kept going. The labor movements happening in the canneries paralleled his life in San Francisco in the winters. In 1968, he participated in strikes at San Francisco State that led to the forming of the school's College of Ethnic Studies. Peñaranda went on to teach literature and Filipino languages in high schools and colleges in California. He's now 78 years old, and he's thinking of returning to Bristol Bay next summer to work with an old friend. It will be the first time he will have worked at a cannery since he stopped over 40 years ago. And another reason that Peñaranda said he kept going back to cannery work was the chance to be a new version of himself. You can reinvent yourself when you go to when you work in the canneries. When you go to Alaska, you can reinvent yourself. You'll be a completely different... You don't like the way you are in San Francisco? Come to Alaska. Make your own reputation. So, a different Oscar Peñaranda may return next summer. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Crumery.
Southeast Alaska's first big fall storm is forecasted to wash ashore this week. Kimberly Vaughn with the National Weather Service in Juneau says it will bring strong winds and heavy rains to the panhandle. There is a big change coming our way. There's a hurricane force low that's tracking across the Gulf. It's going to make landfall between Yakutat and Cordova area. The low-pressure system is expected to weaken slightly as it comes closer to land tomorrow. The northern panhandle is in for the strongest winds and the heaviest rains. Meteorologists are predicting winds 40 to 55 miles per hour tomorrow night, with some areas reaching 60 miles an hour. Three to four inches of rain are forecasted through Thursday. In southern panhandle communities like Ketchikan, Wrangell, and Petersburg, meteorologists expect peak winds of up to 40 miles an hour tomorrow night with some stronger winds possible. There's one to two inches of rain in the forecast through Thursday for that area. High winds and driving rain are not unusual this time of year in southeast, but with the first big fall storm on its way, Vaughn says it's time to get prepared. This is a great time to just make sure you've uh, picked up everything as far as anything that might uh, blow around that you don't want to lose. Um, and then uh, make sure you know where your rubber boots and uh, raincoats are, which is kind of normal attire for southeast. The stormy week ahead follows a couple of unseasonably warm and mild days this past weekend. Stations across southeast, including Ketchikan, Sitka, Petersburg, Haines, and Juneau, broke records with highs in the upper 50s and low 60s. Highs for this time of year are typically in the 40s and 50s, 10 to 15 degrees lower than they were this weekend. Campaign contributions are flooding in for Democrat Mary Peltola to keep the House seat she won in a special election this summer. Peltola raised more than $2 million in September. A new campaign finance report shows that brings her total contributions to nearly $4 million. Her two Republican rivals raised far less. Sarah Palin brought in about $230,000 in September. Nick Begich III took in $57,000 last month. Like Palin, he has raised about $1.5 million in all, but about half of Begich's total came from a personal loan he made to his campaign. Peltola is also getting a cross-party show of support from the late Congressman Don Young's inner circle, a group of 18, most of them former Young staffers, lobbyists, or both, announced they're holding a fundraiser for Mary Peltola. The fundraiser invitation says they're celebrating her commitment to carrying on Young's legacy.